0: Welcome to the Room podcast. I'm Ben Rowey. We're back today with one extra episode about this year's federal election. We're now about three months out from the election and we now have some substantial survey data which gives us some insights into how individual voters cast their ballots and uh, some of the demographic trends that uh, might explain a little bit of what, what happened at this election. To discuss this, I'm joined today by Sean Ratcliffe, who's the Director of Data Science at UGov Asia-Pacific. Hello, Sean.
1: Hi, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: We can learn a lot about election results by analysing the aggregate data. That's what I do. We look at uh, who voted which way in each electorate or booth. We compare that to census data that tells us something about those areas, or we can sort of tell stories about geographical trends in voting. But ultimately, this only tells us how groups of people have voted, divided up by geography. It doesn't tell us about individuals. You never have a geographic group of voters who all vote the same way. And it can lead an analyst into the ecological fallacy where, for example, we assume a wealthy electorate voting in a particular way means wealthy people voted that way, whereas even the wealthiest electorates have some people who are very wealthy and some people who aren't so well off. To get around that problem, the answer is looking at surveys, big surveys. In particular today, we'll be looking at some insights from the Australian Cooperative Election Survey, which Sean has had a key role in pulling together at YouGov. Um, Sean, there have been some hot takes over the last few months that suggested the coalition is now the party of the working class, while Labor's vote comes from richer Australians. Is that true? It's not.
1: Uh, so, so as you said, Ben, um, a lot of these commentators they they relied on aggregate data, which, as you discussed, is is really useful, really important. I use it myself sometimes, and when we want to understand how uh, electorates voted, and we want to we want to look at you know, wealthy areas versus less wealthy areas, or areas with more religious voters versus areas with fewer religious voters, uh, that can be very useful and very important. But once we move into the territory of trying to understand how, as you discussed, individuals voted, uh, it can lead people into making some really bad claims. And and at this election, as well as the last election, uh, a, a few commentators uh, in a few different newspapers, in particular, have. Uh, taken, I think, their analysis a step too far, and they've used aggregate uh, electorate-level data, in most cases, to make claims that the left is now the political side of the rich, and the right, as one individual described it, is the side of politics of the struggling or the working class. And uh, a lot of the individual-level data we have suggests that the opposite is still the case.
0: Now, we'll get into the income divides and the wealth divides that do exist, but can we start with who swung at this election? So we know at, a, at an aggregate level, um, the coalition lost a bunch of seats in, in urban Australia. They did particularly badly in Western Australia. Uh, they did kind of badly in a bunch of seats with large Chinese populations, and those seats were the ones that flipped but of course, voters are changing directions in all places all over the country. So what are the some of the particular notable groups that we saw that changed how they voted in 2022?
1: Yeah, so, so I think when it comes to swings there, some of the analysis post-election is on stronger footing. So definitely when we look at survey data, it looks like the coalition did lose support amongst uh, highly educated voters in particular. So those with a university degree uh, and also higher income voters. And part of this is about the coalition's weakness at the 2022 election in inner and middle suburban areas. So the coalition did quite poorly uh, in, in places like the lower north shore of Sydney, the eastern suburbs of Sydney, and also the inner eastern suburbs of Melbourne, uh, as well as the inner city of Brisbane and, and Perth, which tend to have an over-representation of well-educated and higher-income voters. Uh, and this, wasn't, this was partially the story of the Teals where these community independents did really well in traditional, uh, very safe Liberal Party seats that tend to be high income and high education. Places like Wentworth in in Sydney uh, and and North Sydney in Sydney and and Kooyong in Melbourne. But uh, it's also about the Labor Party doing well in places like Bennelong in in the sort of North Shore adjacent sort of parts of Sydney and also Reid, which both seats do, they're sort of middle to upper middle income. Electorates with very well-educated uh, voters, um, and also Brisbane and uh, Ryan in in the Brisbane metropolitan area, both of which are generally reasonably high-income, well-educated electorates as well. So it's not just a story of the Teals; it's a story of the Coalition across the board doing quite poorly in the in the inner and middle suburbs of the big cities, Australia's big cities, big metropolitan areas, and 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 they kind of went backwards, regardless of who their competition was, whether it was Independence, Labor or the Greens, uh, the coalition or, or the Liberal Party, more specifically, uh, went backwards in these sorts of areas, which have better educated higher income voters.
0: So the gap on income is getting smaller, but uh, it still does exist. Is, is that kind of one of the conclusions that you've come to?
1: Yeah. So there has certainly been a, a slight decline in the what you might call the income gradient in voting in Australia. So where you, you know, you might traditionally have thought, oh, as income goes up, people become more conservative. And that probably has dropped off a little bit, but I think that was never as important as some people thought it was. Um, Income does matter, but it's not necessarily the main thing we might want to look at when we're thinking about someone's economic self-interest. So one of the issues with looking at income is uh, someone that, if you compare two people with quite high incomes, but one person is an employee, say a professional they work for someone else, um, their income or their their earning capacity still comes from labor. And so those voters tend to lean further to the left than their income might suggest. But if you compare them with, say, a small business owner, whose income might partially derive from their own labor, but often also comes from their ownership of capital, they own a business, they may also be deriving income from the, the labor of others, they tend to be more conservative than just looking at their income might suggest. So the ownership of capital, the ownership of wealth and assets, and the way your income is generated—whether it's through labour or through the ownership of assets and wealth and capital—is uh, a really important factor in in looking at how economic interests translate into political interests.
0: Yeah, I would imagine those two people would have quite different uh, self interests when it comes to voting on issues that you know would affect those kinds of businesses. This also would apply to home ownership, right? That um, you know, there are people who uh, own homes, maybe relatively cheaper homes in the outer suburbia with huge mortgages. They're not uh, particularly well off, but they have a very different self-interest to someone who's a renter. Um, and that, that may not be reflected in the income statistics, right?
1: That's right. So home ownership is definitely a major variable. When we look at what sort of characteristics of voters are associated with vote intention or or which party someone supports. Home ownership is a really big one. So for instance, we've been looking at um, the relationship between sort of age and home ownership and vote at the 2022 election. And when we look at 18 to 34 year old voters, for instance, the coalition did reasonably well with 18 to 34 year old voters that own their own homes. I think their, their, their level of support primary vote was in the 30s. Not great, but not terrible. Uh, but if you look at eight to 34-year-olds that don't own their own home, which is about half of that age group at the moment, uh, the coalition's level of support, their primary vote in that group, was about 17%. About half what they got, the Greens got for that cohort. The Greens got about in the low 30s.
0: I would imagine this would be particularly playing out in places like... The you know the eastern half of Sydney the the wealthier parts of Melbourne where house prices are very high, um, you could have quite a high income living there and uh, not own your own home, um, and you know when we when it comes to questions around should a government be doing things that uh, lower house prices or at least reduce the increasing rate of house prices, um, those voters could be quite high income but. Um, out of step with the kind of the asset owning class.
1: Yeah, I mean, I would I would say this is politically relevant even to a wider group than that. Um, I would say most of Sydney. I mean, there I don't think there are any legitimately cheap areas in Sydney anymore, right? Like it, it's not like what you know. You go back to the nineteen eighties when, okay, if you're willing to move to the outer suburbs, you can pick up a relatively affordable house, and and on a sort of average income, you can buy something okay in the outer suburbs. That's not really the case anymore. So I'd say this actually affects uh, young, but even uh, not just young people across Sydney. Uh, the other group that's obviously badly affected is actually older women. Uh, if they if they get divorced, they've got to go, you know, find housing. Uh, they may have been out of the workforce or, or only tangentially involved in the workforce for many decades. If they are a parent, um, housing is a big problem for that group too. So there's actually a number of different cohorts. That housing is an issue, but certainly younger voters—it's a particularly salient issue—with about half um, not owning their own home. And that that statistic—I know some people go, "Well, okay, obviously the younger—you know—younger people are always less likely to own their own home." But this actually, this number has been going up every generation. So if you compare baby boomers with Gen X, Gen X with millennials at the same age, the percentage at the, at the same age, say 30, that doesn't own their own home keeps going up every generation. Um, So, And and, and this group has has been um, particularly bad for the coalition going back to at least the 1990s. This isn't a new phenomenon. The coalition has always done worse with voters that don't own their own home. And that group, especially amongst younger voters... Has crept up over time.
0: It's not just that young people don't vote for the coalition because of a vibe they don't like, or that they don't like Scott Morrison, or that it's something kind of unchangeable and eternal about young people and conservatives. Like there is, that may also be true, but there there is real material self interest that is getting between those people and voting for the coalition, um, and that gap in self interest may be widening and becoming a bigger factor over time
1: yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I, I don't want to discount the vibe. Obviously, the vibe is important, but it's it's certainly not the only thing going on here. there's There are a number of different factors, and I think housing is is a big one, and we've actually seen the coalition's uh, support amongst younger voters has declined over time. It's not this wasn't this gap the size of the age gap wasn't always the case. It has grown. And there are a number of different factors here. Um, younger voters are also much less religious than older voters, so there's a few different things going on. Uh, it's not just about material self-interest but I think that is certainly a big part of it that younger people um, own have less weth- wealth in general than older voters and that's probably part of what explains what we call the life cycle effect in politics where you know people often talk about how you get more conservative as you age and this isn't just a an automatic function of aging that people just automatically become more conservative as they get older I think part of it is that their their life, Circumstances change as they age, and traditionally, at least, uh, as people you know get went into their thirties and forties, they bought a house and started a family. They built up wealth in, in various forms of assets, and this does tend to draw, push people to the right. It doesn't; it's not automatic. You don't automatically go from being a, a left wing radical that votes for the Greens to a staunch conservative the second you buy a house. But there are a number of different factors that, that that increase the probability that you will be more, you know, be a more conservative voter, and and home ownership is one of those things. Uh, and so the issue here, though, for the coalition, as I see it, is um, some of these life cycle effects are being interrupted. The high cost of housing in, in the big cities, but right up the east coast, really, it's not just Sydney. It's it's. A number of communities right up the east coast of New South Wales, it's Melbourne, it's to a slightly lesser extent Brisbane and Perth, Um, Hobart's getting more expensive. It's a lot of Australia now. Most of the places that have good um, job markets, employment markets, tend to have expensive housing. Um, And this, amongst other things, makes it a little bit harder for, for younger generations to enter the housing market. And they're entering later as well. Uh, And the issue for the coalition is if people enter the housing market after their politics is largely formed, because the older we get, the less elastic our political preferences become. If people enter the housing market at 40 rather than 25 or even 30, uh, the chances that they'll shift to the right after they build wealth are probably a little bit lower.
0: We've talked a lot about age. We've talked a lot about income and wealth. Um, But the survey... Covers a bunch of demographics, and what you've written about this. Uh, there's no one final article, journal piece, or anything on this yet. But there's you've done some slideshows, which we'll share um, that explain some of this. But what are you seeing in terms of gender?
1: Yeah, so uh, there's there's a few interesting things, at least in our data, that we've we've discovered from gender. So um, there's there's been talk recently of a gender gap. In politics where women are to the left of men and we see a little bit less of that than in some other data sets but we have noticed it with uh, younger men and women so younger women in particular um in our data it appears they're, they're significantly more left-leaning if you want to describe it that way and certainly much more greens voting than young men so if there is a gender gap emerging it looks like it's it's particularly there particularly evident in younger voters with younger women certainly becoming increasingly left wing and increasingly unlikely to vote for the coalition.
0: I heard you present on this at a webinar that Macquarie Uni put on one of the other speakers there, Ben Spees Butcher. I don't know what data set he was using. He
1: was using our data as
0: well. He was using your data? Okay, cool. I was looking at Greens vote by gender and age bracket and was finding that there wasn't much of a gender gap in the Greens vote for older age groups, although generally it was smaller. But as as they got younger, the the total proportion of the greens vote was getting bigger but it was also particularly getting bigger for women that young women um, both uh, under 25 but also probably the 25 to 34 age group there was a lot more young women voting for the greens than young men
1: yeah that's right so so what we found was over 30% of women uh, aged 18 to 34 vote greens probably a bit over 30% while for men it was a little bit lower it was um, probably a bit closer to 20%. So so young men were still more Greens voting than older men. Uh, There's, as you said, an age gradient for both genders, where the younger you get, the more likely you are to vote for the Greens. But for women, that age gradient is particularly steep, where, where the Greens voters gets well above 30% for 18- to 34-year-old women, while 18- um, to 34-year-old women let fewer than 30%, probably closer to 20-25% vote, voted for the coalition. So once again, the, Green, uh, the Greens do significantly better with young women than the coalition does, while for young men, um, they're probably slightly more likely to vote for the coalition than than the Greens. So still less likely to vote for the coalition than older men, but the coalition vote holds up a bit higher for young men than it does for young women.
0: Do you notice the same effect for Labor, or is it just that Labor then benefits from that big Greens preference flow?
1: We found that Labor does... Better for under 65s than over 65s, so their vote drops off a little bit with over 65s, but there's less of an age gradient and not really a gender gradient for the Labor Party at this election at least. Um, Now, that's not to say at previous elections that hasn't been the case, but at this election, in our data, we didn't really see much of a gender gap for the Labor support. It's just really the coalitions and Greens.
0: But I'd guess if you did, I don't know if you calculated a 2PP with this, but I would guess if you looked at the 2PP for Labor, you know, nearly all of those Greens voters preference Labor, and that would probably create a bit of an effect there. But it's not so much in the Labor primary vote, which, I mean, I did some blog posts on this, but like barely five-eighths of the Labor 2PP was Labor primary vote.
1: Yeah, so so that's right. If you look at Labor 2PP, and I think Ben, in, in his presentation, he did look at 2PP uh, or an estimate of it. Um, yeah, there, there does end up being a bit of a two-party preferred gender gap, um, or might have been one of the other speakers, but I think someone did look at this at that, that um, seminar at Macquarie. Uh, there, there does end up being a bit of a gender gap on Labor's 2PP with younger voters, just because you've got that massive Greens vote amongst young women. And if 80 to 85% or more of those voters end up with Labor, you're going to end up with a, a, at least some sort of gender gap with younger voters.
0: Now, you did look a little bit at uh, LGBT uh, voting trends for that community. Uh, what did that find?
1: Yeah, so we did explore that a little bit. It's, it's not something I've spent as much time looking at as, as the sort of economic interests and how they flow into vote. Just because it's it's a sort of newer phenomenon and it's not one that's been as established uh, in Australian politics, and so it's not something I was necessarily looking for. Uh, but it is something we did explore, and it's it's a bit of a similar pattern as what we we're just talking about with gender, where um, young uh, women, sorry, that are um, LGBTQ plus tend to be much more likely to vote for the Greens. So so the Greens do generally a lot better with LGBTQ. Uh, voters, but particularly uh, women, uh, whilst the liberal part the coalition does a bit better with with men. Uh, so there's sort of a gender gap there too, uh, which is interesting and not something we necessarily expected.
0: It's interesting that you looked at uh, what proportion identified as LGBTQI+, plus, as you defined it. Um, and for people under 25 and people in their late 20s, it looked like it was close to 20%. Uh, identifying that way, uh, whereas people in their early 30s look similar to people in their 50s than they do to people in their late 20s. I don't know if there's any sampling issues there potentially, but it's not a gradual gradient of more people identifying. It's a sudden kind of drop off around the age of 30. I don't know what that says about people. You know, I'm I'm 36. About people who are a few years younger than me compared to people of my age, but um, it's quite a sudden increase.
1: Yeah, yeah. So obviously sampling might be part of the issue there, but certainly the general trend we've observed there that there is certainly a a big increase in identification as LGBTQ plus amongst younger voters does appear to be a real phenomenon. A a number of studies have been done around the world about this, and it's a similar pattern everywhere. So over time, younger people are more willing to identify their their sexuality and their gender in different ways than than older individuals are, uh, and this this is a pretty clear trend. Um, and and one of the advantages of this survey, so I don't think we've we've really discussed um, the survey we ran the Australian Cooperative Election Survey in any detail, but it has a very large sample size. So we surveyed nearly six thousand voters during the campaign. So one of the advantages of having such a big sample size is we can start to look at some of these smaller groups of voters that. Traditionally, just aren't really explored in survey data. So um, one of the reasons why we don't know if there's a history of um, political difference amongst LGBTQ plus voters is they just traditionally election surveys didn't ask about that group. And one of the re- now one of the reasons they maybe didn't ask about that group is you know to reasons of taboo um, and history. You know they, they they weren't a traditional group studied, so they just left off surveys. But part of the reason was also sample size if you've got one or two thousand respondents in your survey and this is about nine percent of the electorate you're looking at less than two hundred respondents if you get you know a representative sample so getting a bit too small to do much with because we've got about six thousand respondents though or just under we had uh over five hundred uh respondents who identified as l b g t q plus and and that's not the question we asked them we went into a bit more detail on the survey question to you know identify that group of voters. So that gives us enough people to start to explore some of these patterns and trends in the electorate, including the sort of relationship between age and, and identity there, which you know, does lead to that interesting finding that younger voters in particular are much more likely to be open to identifying in different ways. And this might be part of the reason why younger voters have turned away from the political right, and and in particular have embraced parties of the left like the Labor Party and the Greens.
0: You know, we talked a lot about the ecological fallacy, and I find it interesting. You know, the Greens, famously, the electorates, where they do the best, are relatively close to the city. They're urban seats, so they have a decent amount of cultural diversity, but they're not the most multicultural electorates, and indeed some of them are a lot wider than they used to be. Um, And they don't do particularly well in the electorates that have very large Aboriginal populations. But when you look at the results of this survey, the Greens do significantly better amongst people who identify as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, and then they do better amongst people who speak a language other than English at home compared to those who only speak English at home. And Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are excluded from those two other groups. So these are three mutually exclusive groups, if I'm understanding it correctly. Um, I found that really interesting. So it's saying, okay, just because the Greens maybe do better amongst Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voters who live in places where we can't, detect how they vote based on booth patterns because they don't live in remote communities they live amongst other Australians in big cities yep. um, I thought that was really interesting
1: yeah well I mean so often when people discuss the politics of um, you know first Nation voters in Australia they automatically jump to you know remote communities but a lot of Aboriginal people live in Sydney uh, a lot of Aboriginal people live in Brisbane and Perth. Uh, so, you know, we're talking about a, a diverse group of voters and yeah, according to our data, at least a lot of them vote for the Greens. A lot vote Labor as well. So, um, yeah, we find that, that both respondents that are are not first nation voters, but, um, speak a language other than English at home and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voters, um, both are more likely to vote for the Labor party or the Greens and much less likely to vote for the coalition Um, now that general pattern might not be very surprising. I don't know. Um, But yeah, I agree. The, 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 the result for the greens, which, uh, you know, sometimes get characterized as sort of this party of university educated urban professionals, which may be correct to a certain degree, um, but it is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, So it does look like perhaps even the, the education, uh, factor with Greens is declining a bit, where traditionally the Greens relied really heavily on, on university-educated voters for their support. Now, it looks like really what you'd say about the Greens is they're a party of young renters. Uh, so it's really young renters that voted for the Greens at this election. And and this is a pretty diverse group. It's, it includes a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders. It includes a lot of LGBTQ plus voters. Uh, it, the, 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 it includes a lot of voters with lower levels of education. Um, and, and I think that sort of explains some of what happened in Brisbane, for instance, that it wasn't just urban professionals that voted for the Greens. It was young people living in the inner city, mostly renting, were essentially the the base of support for the party there.
0: Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of implications for the parties about uh, these voting trends, and I think it's it's really of interest. Uh, we're going to wrap up now. Um, what's next for the survey data? Like, what's what's going to be the use for it?
1: Yep. So we actually, with the the cooperative election survey, so UGov ran the survey for a consortium of of academics. Uh, so there's about a dozen academics at several universities that that contributed to this survey, and so they're all working on their individual projects. Uh, one group out of Macquarie have already published a piece in the Conversation about uh, religion at the election. So so some of the research is already coming out from the survey, uh, and and a number of other teams are. are Working on uh, projects as diverse as, as rural politics in Australia, um, yeah, to to religion, uh, to economic interest and, and political trust, and a number of other sort of, I think, really important topics. So, so those teams are all working on on journal articles and and, and conference papers right now, and the goal is to eventually share some of the data um, with the wider research community. So, down the track, once the the academics that contributed to the survey, have have had a chance to do their research, will publish at least the core data. So that's the sort of key demographics, vote intentions, some of those questions, uh, so that other researchers can use the data to help us better understand Australian politics.
0: And uh, we're going to we're gonna link to the slideshow you presented for the Macquarie Uni webinar that I was an observer at. So that's about it for this episode of the Tally Room podcast. Thank you, Sean, for joining me. Thanks, Ben. You can find this podcast on your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, please consider rating or reviewing us on iTunes. You can follow The Tally Room on Twitter at The Tally Room or like us on Facebook. This podcast is made possible thanks to the generous support of our donors on Patreon. Sign up at patreon.com slash tallyroom. Information about this podcast is available at tallyroom.com.au and you can email questions or feedback to the tallyroom at gmail.com. Thanks to Chris DeBrow for writing the music you hear in this episode. Once again, thanks for listening.